0: Morning, everybody. All doing well today? Kind of, sort of, wellish. All right. Well, it's sure good to see you here and good to welcome our online crowd. Glad you were with us today, also. Man, what a great time of worship! Didn't you appreciate our youth joining with our our choir this morning and helping <clears throat> present that worship? They always uh, add so much. Wow! What a uh, where where we are now in Revelation. We covered some ground last week, didn't we? Man, think of what we saw. We saw the return of Christ to this world. And with that, uh, the the Antichrist and the false prophet, these great powers in the world, were just dismissed to the lake of fire. I mean, I mean just like that. All unbelievers were, I mean, I don't know what word to say, but obliterated. They're gone. They're, they're off the planet. And now Jesus... Rolls into Jerusalem, setting up his kingdom of righteousness and, and justice. So now what? What, what comes next? It kind of feels like, I think for a lot of us, we should be in heaven now, right? Isn't this when heaven starts and, and eternity starts? And the answer is uh, not quite yet. <laughs> I, I have entitled today's message, Tying Up Loose Sins. That's probably not a very good title. You know, tying up loose ends kind of implies that we have, some, we have some minor details that we need to take care of, and yet what we need to look at is not minor and it's not small. With all that we have seen in 19 chapters of Revelation, with all that we saw the last couple of weeks just in Revelation 19, there's actually some very big things that have not at all been addressed, like Satan. Satan has not been addressed. Satan has not been dealt with yet. Uh, we have not seen the resurrection of any unbelievers. And then there is the issue of a kingdom, a messianic kingdom or a millennial kingdom. Well, all of these issues are going to be dealt with in Revelation chapter 20. I mean, those are, that's a lot of issues. Those are big issues. And they're all going to be dealt with in just this one chapter. You could call Revelation chapter 20 the most important chapter in the book. Now, when you think of where we were last week and some of the other things we'd see, that might sound like I'm just pumping up 20 because that's where we are today. But literally, what people do, and when I say people, like like Bible scholars, theologians, what somebody does with Revelation 20 is going to determine how they interpret, how they order, how they understand all of the revelation. So w- as we open up Revelation 20, th- this is kind of a center of what this book is doing and what it's all about. So let- let's go ahead and get started in that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Just go to the end of your Bible. Go to the maps and then just back up a few pages, and you should be in Revelation chapter 20 uh, pretty quickly. It's a, uh, not a very long chapter, especially considering all that it is going to cover. Uh, Revelation 20, and I'll begin in verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. "...and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those, were, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed." And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. These are the tribulational saints, people who came to Christ during the tribulation and were killed. Now they're being resurrected right here. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. As they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne. To what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we start off, well, of course, we'll just start at the top and work our way down, but you'll, you'll notice right away you see that number a thousand quite a few times. Six to be exact. Six times this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is described as being a thousand years long. Now, kind of an interesting point. Nowhere else in the Bible is it described as a thousand years. It is only right here in Revelation 20 that it is described as being a thousand years long. Now, while it's only here that the length of time is given, the idea behind this kingdom is all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. This was, this kingdom being described here, this was the great hope of the Jews, you heard me say a, a couple of weeks ago that I think part of what happened in the, with the Jews is they did not recognize they did not acknowledge all of the prophecy about the first coming of Jesus because they were so enthralled, so captured by this second coming that they, they weren 't looking for the suffering servant they weren 't looking for the person who was going to die on the cross for them that That was all there, but they didn't see it. They saw this, this reigning king. They saw this general coming, and that was their focus. And this is, this is God bringing to them the kingdom that he's promised. I want to show you real quickly uh, a handful of verses and kind of some some bullet points, some ideas behind what this kingdom looks like. Now, those verses up there, those aren't the only verses talking about the messianic kingdom. Uh, There's a lot of them. That's just a sampling. And if you were to go to those verses, you would find the messianic kingdom being described in these ways. Uh, Psalm 2, there at the top, nations may rebel for now. That's the world we live in, nations. Remember, most of the time you see the word nations, it's actually saying ethnos, ethnicities, people groups. We rebel now, but God will destroy them. His son, Jesus, will be established as king in Jerusalem, where he will set up a reign of righteousness and justice and peace. And then all the nations during this time will look to Jerusalem to learn about the Lord. There will be no more world war. The world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. There will be no weeping. There will be no crying. Can you imagine that for a thousand years? There won't be any reason to cry. No crying. Stop that. No crying. In, no crying in the millennium. Uh, the people will live to be very old. Now we'll do a quick timeout right here. You say what people? I thought we'd already been resurrected. I I thought we'd already been given our eternal bodies. You and I have. Those that were taken up in the rapture have already gone through our judgment. We've come back with Christ. Remember I said last week, on day one of this kingdom... On the day that Jesus returns, all unbelievers are gone and only believers. And I can't imagine there's many of them after what the Antichrist had done. There can't be many believers, but that's who is still alive. Believers who survived the tribulation. And they will be marrying, and they'll be having children, and they'll be repopulating the planet. And, and they will... that never says they'll live forever. They'll still die and, and go through a resurrection like you and I have... But uh, they will, it doesn't say they'll live forever, but it says they'll live a long time. As a matter of fact, if somebody were to die at 100, that they would be considered cursed. So that's who that is talking about. This is going to be a time of great prosperity and joy. There'll be peace among animals. You know the, the verse where the lamb and the lion will lie down together. That, that's during the millennial kingdom. Uh, Israel will be secure. Israel will be one nation. That was a big promise to the Jews during a lot of the writing of these passages. They were two nations, Israel and Judah. They'll Will be one nation under one king, a descendant of David. We know his name, don't we? It's Jesus. Go ahead and say that. Jesus. All right. I knew you knew. And then uh, God will live among them. Now, you look at that description and you think, well, that looks a lot like heaven. I mean, other than, you know, there's people who still die. That looks a lot like heaven. It does look a lot like heaven. It is very much like heaven. But it is not yet heaven. This is a a kingdom in this world as we know it. Because, folks, God doesn't have to take people to heaven to fulfill his promises. He fulfills his promises right here. He fulfills his promises in this world. He can do that, and that is a part of what's going on with this kingdom. Now, this thousand years, I said the way you look at the whole book kind of depends on what you do with these thousand years. There's there's three major ways to look at these thousand years, and I kind of chuckle because these three ways will probably not help you one bit this week. They're not going to help you get through any challenge or get through any difficulty. But if you ever hear these words, you can at least say, I think my pastor talked about that once. I don't want to be that church where you say, my church never addressed that. My my church never talked about that. I want you to at least know what somebody's having a conversation about out there. So on these thousand years, three major ways, amillennial, postmillennial, and and premillennial, ah, this is all about the prefix. If you haven't figured that out, ah means none. Okay. The amillennialist people who hold this view believe there is no thousand years, that this is a symbolic time. It is a spiritual time. They would actually say we are, we're in it right now. Satan is bound. I mean, that, that that's one of the descriptions of this kingdom. Not only is Jesus ruling, but Satan is bound. Now, you might be scratching your head right now thinking, wait, what? Sa- Satan's bound right now? I- I- take a poll. Does it feel like Satan is bound right now? But they would actually say that the fact that the gospel advances that, that, that people are coming to know the Lord, that people are being born again, that would be evidence that, that Satan is bound. But an amillennialist believes there is no literal thousand years, that, that, that idea only appears here, and clearly thousand is just meant to be something symbolic. And so they believe there is no one thousand years. A post-millennial, in my opinion, actually very similar to, a, to an all-millennial, uh, but they do believe in a more distinct thousand years. They actually believe the world's kind of, kind of get better and better and better, and one day we're just gonna be in this kingdom, and, and then Jesus will come back. The amillennial also believes and then Jesus will come back. So they both have the second coming after this kingdom has taken place. And then the premillennial believes that the second coming is before the millennium. That Jesus, and you've probably, I hope you remember me using some of these words. Now you'll know why I was using them. Jesus bodily, Jesus physically, Jesus visibly returned to this earth and set up a kingdom. It's not a kingdom in heaven. It's not a spiritual kingdom. It is a real kingdom that you can look at and see in Jerusalem. That's premillennial. So the last six months, since, we've, since Easter, you have been hearing, whether you knew it or not, uh, a look at Revelation, an interpretation of Revelation that would be called a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. Throw that out sometime this week. Just, just you know, say, hey, I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill. What do you think you are? And uh, just see what happens. (laughs) Let me know. We'll do a poll. But uh, that's how I've been interpreting and looking at it. Now, all three views... Have some have some good scholarship. Ha, have godly people that follow them. I don't know why two of the three choose to be wrong. Some people just like being wrong, I guess. But uh, they they all have some some godly adherents that that follow them and, and ha, ha, why they hold those views. Post millennial would be the smallest of the views. Uh, it used to actually be uh, a, a, had a, had a pretty large following, and where post millennial kind of began to fall apart because remember this is. View that says the world just gets better and better and better, and one day Jesus is here. Would you believe World War I? That historical event, World War I, is where historically, in a theological sense, post millennial began to kind of fall apart. Because, first of all, I mean, the world's at war. We looked around after now almost 2,000 years and said, you know, the world's not getting better and better. But it wasn't just that. Think about who's, who was in World War I. All the nations fighting each other went to the same church. All the nations fighting each other, praying to the same God. It was kind of the first time we saw the world at war and they were Christian nations fighting each other. And I, I want to say that with a little bit of caveat. I'm not even sure what I believe about the phrase Christian nation. I'm not sure that's quite possible. Okay. But they were all nations that were calling out to the same God. And here they are at war. And that view just kind of fell apart. There is some, some adherence of it today. But primarily you're going to find people being either amillennial Or premillennial. Now, the the reasons I am not an an ah mill or a or a post mill, uh, the reason I don't follow those two, both of those views tend to move away from a literal view of of not only of scripture but specifically they move away from a literal view of Revelation, and, and I approach it with a, a literal view. I'm going to take it literally. The pre-mill view is a literal, historical, grammatical look at Scripture. And, and folks, literal doesn't mean we don't recognize its symbols, like, like a thousand. Maybe that's a symbolic idea. People who take Scripture literally acknowledge that there's symbols, there's metaphors, there's similes. That's when we say literal grammatical. So when Jesus says, I am the door of life, don't look for a doorknob and hinges on his body, right? We get it. I have a literal view of scripture and I understand that Jesus doesn't, isn't a doorknob and have hinges on Him. Okay. So, but the amill and post mill tend to move away from a literal view of scripture. A a second reason I disagree with is, is they, they do away with Israel. And they're going to primarily be going back to what Israel did with Jesus at the first coming. And that was ultimately they, they killed him. They put him on a cross. And they're going to say at this point God's plan moved from physical Israel to a spiritual Israel. You and I are sitting in that spiritual Israel. With the, the church. The church became the new Israel. I I, I see how they get to that idea. But just to make it clear, that is a deduction they're making. There's not a single verse in the Bible that God says, I'm done with Israel. Not one. Not one in the Old Testament. Not one in the New Testament. What you do find all the way throughout the Bible, including the age of the church, including in the New Testament, is God making promises to Israel, using words like promise, eternal, covenant, I don't break covenant. God is going to keep his promises to the nation of Israel. That's just a a belief I hold. That's my interpretation of all of those passages. So I can't have a view of the end in which Israel's not a part of that. That's why I hold to a a premillennial view. A third reason I'm not real all-mill post-mill is because both of those views have the second coming of Christ after After the millennial reign. After this, however you understand this reign. Well, I I have a variety of reasons. I believe the second coming comes first. But here's one. Look at the first word. If you still have your Bible open, look at chapter 20. The first verse. Look at the first word. What is it in yours? Then. Then is a timing word, right? We were doing this, but then... This came first and go ahead and say it. And then, right now I have said, and I've I've done a lot of repetition through this series because revelation is a challenging book to hang on to and, and understand. You've heard me say now multiple times, one of the problems with knowing where you are as you're going through the revelation is you have chapters that move the ball forward chronologically. And so you're going through it and you're you're on day one of the tribulation and you're on the sixth month of the tribulation and then you're one year into the tribulation. But sometimes with no real notice, all of a sudden you stop moving the ball chronologically and you're in a chapter that gives supplemental information. We've stopped moving chronologically. Now I'm just going to stop and fill in some details. And we've done that, right? All through this summer, you know, and so now all of a sudden the supplemental information may go back into ground we've already covered. It may go forward to where we haven't been, or it may do both. I mean, folks, think about it. We we went almost all the way through Revelation and got to chapter 17 and 18 on Babylon. And that was supplemental information that was actually covering the whole tribulation. So here we've come all the way through Revelation. And now we go back and get information that covers the entire time that we've already studied. So somebody might say, well, chapter 20 is supplemental information. It's not meant to imply that this comes after the second coming. We just, we move the ball chronologically. Now we're stopping and getting some supplemental information about, about things. Except the word then. Then. The word then is a timing word. None of the chapters that give us supplemental information start with the word then or next or now. That is a timing word. There was this and then. Have I made my point yet? Okay, so we have the second coming and then we're into the millennial kingdom. So those would be some of the reasons. I, I, I don't follow those views. And, and by the way, I just want to be clear that, that if somebody were an all millennial or postmillennial, they would be highly unimpressed with my lumping them together and dismissing them with those three points. They would probably develop that a little bit differently. And to be clear, all mill and post mill are two very distinct views. It's just that what I disagree with each view a- a- actually is quite similar. So the pre mill, The pre-mill holds the idea that Jesus returns, and then upon his return, goes into Jerusalem, and he sets up his kingdom. And it is going to be a a, a thousand year. I do hold to a literal thousand years. Do you know why I hold to a literal thousand years? Because that's how I approach the whole Bible. That's how I approach Revelation, unless something demands that I see it as a symbol or, or a metaphor. And here's the beauty of this. If it's not a thousand years, if it is meant to be a, a just kind of a symbol of a perfect reign, a perfect amount of time, maybe it's really five hundred and eighty-seven years, or maybe it's eleven hundred and nineteen years. But it's it's not a thousand. Do you know the rest of my view is not impacted at all? My entire view of what is in the millennium and why there's a millennium is still intact. Where with these other views, if it is a literal thousand years, their view begins to fall apart. So I don't lose anything by taking it literal. So I'm going I'm to go with a literal thousand years. So Jesus sets up this reign. And then at the end of it, Satan is bound. But at the end of the thousand years, he's going to let Satan out for what, what was called a little season. And and Satan will move throughout the world And he is going to deceive people. You say, who's, who's he going to deceive? I thought, I thought everybody was a Christian. No, on day one, everybody was a Christian. And then all those Christians started having babies, and these new babies who are growing up have to make a decision about Christ. Have to make a decision if they're going to follow him. And you say, well, how hard would that be? I mean, he's, he's right there. No, no faith involved in this. He's right there in, in front of them. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that in just a second. But he will be able to gather, well, it says here, like the sand on the seashore. I mean, we're we're talking about a lot of people that he will be able to deceive, say, come follow me, and then they're going to go up against Jerusalem, fire's going to fall from heaven, and that battle will be very quick, just like the one we saw at Armageddon. Now it would be a fair question, if, especially for those of us looking forward to heaven, right? To go now, now, wait a minute. So why is there a thousand years? Why don't why don't we just go on into heaven? Or a bigger question: Why does God let Satan out again? I mean, he finally got him tied up and thrown into a pit. Let us just leave him. And this guy is like a cause of a lot of problems. Why in the world would God let him out? Well, the purpose of the millennium, let me say it very clearly. God is a promise keeper. He doesn't leave any promise undone. God doesn't say, well, I did all this good over here. Can that kind of count for me keeping promise? No, God made promises to the Jews about that kingdom, all those verses and what it was going to be like. God made a promise and he's fulfilling that promise. But why did he let Satan out? I'm going to suggest that it's to make a point, a point that humanity—that means you and me—that that means it's a point that that we really need to get. Now, now, what is the point that God is making? I I have a, a an opinion on this. And have you ever thought of something for so long you can't remember where you learned it? And maybe even thought, maybe I came up with this. Well, that, that would be this right here. I think this is my own idea. I, I, I think this is, I came up with this all on my own. So I just want to tell you right now, that by itself means you should probably question this. Okay? But here, here's my idea. Why does, why does God let Satan out? Okay, look at what we're dealing with in the world today. I mean, we have a virus, right? By the way, you know, we've never been on the planet when there wasn't a virus. There's, there's always been a virus, viruses, there, that's always been the case. There's viruses and there's injustices and there's, there's adulteries and there's lies and there's thievery and there's greed and there's anger and there's ugliness and just a whole host of things that cause you and me as an individual, as a family, as a nation, just a world of problem, right? Where did all that come from? Well, you and I know as as believers in the Bible, we know, well, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Three chapters into the Bible, we have Adam and Eve there experiencing a perfect world, experiencing God face to face, just enjoying all of that, and here comes Satan. And Satan tempts them to believe that there's a greater good to be found. You can find a greater good. You can find more good. You can find a better good. God's holding out on you. There's so much more. And you know, Adam and Eve bit. They thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's go create this ourselves. And that decision plunged our world into every problem that you and I are, are dealing with. And these problems sting a little bit every now and then, don't they? And you get aggravated and you get frustrated and we want to know where did this come from? And we go, well, no, wait a minute. Okay, this all goes back to Adam and Eve and maybe even get a little angry at God. Hey, hey, God, I, wait a minute. You mean all this that I'm experiencing that we're experiencing is because of what they did? I mean, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem fair at all. Hey, listen, I don't like feeling any pain. But I really don't like feeling pain because of what somebody else did, right? It's one thing when my own decisions bring that into my life. But when somebody else, and now I'm feeling all this pain, and God, you're telling me this all goes back to Adam and Eve, and then I'm going to take it one step further. You know, God, not only do I not think that's fair, I don't think I'd have made that decision. I, I, th- I, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that, and yet you're holding me accountable for, for what they for what they did. Don't you think probably it's sometimes God just smiles at us, shakes his head. My goodness, aren't you something? We got it all figured out, don't we? So there we are, three chapters into the Bible, and there's our problem. And so now God is going to go to the other end of the the bible and look how we bookends this whole story we've got a, a multitude of people three chapters by the way from the end of the bible if you've been under my preaching for any amount of time and I, I look out there a lot of you've been under my preaching for years and years and years you know i am not at all a believer in secret codes i'm not at all a believer that you can take this verse and multiply it by the change in your pocket and you'll figure out the date of the lord's return I mean, all that—that that secrets. I do not believe there because God. God's not into secrets and codes. God's a revealer. God is light. God, God shines light. God reveals the revelation. Okay, so God doesn't play the codes. But it is interesting that we're three chapters into the Bible and we have two people making this decision, and then we get three chapters from the end of the Bible. It's a little spooky. <laughs> I have to admit, you know what that means? Not a thing. Two people here, now come to the other end. There's a multitude. A multitude doing what? Living in the very presence of God. Enjoying tremendous goodness. And they actually think they can find more than God. Two people, multitudes of people. Folks, the problem isn't what you and I would have done. The problem isn't what they did or they did. It's humanity. We are wicked. And given any opportunity, we will rebel against God. I think my own rules are better. I think I can do good. I think I can make a better good. And we choose that over and over and over. Now, think of think of where God is showing, you know, he, he's bookending the whole human story with two stories that are identical with the exception it's two here and it's multitudes here. But think of what's getting ready to happen in chapter 21. We're getting ready to be introduced to heaven. And before God ushers people into heaven, to me it's just like he's making it clear. When you go into heaven, it's not because of the good choices you've made. And it's not because of the good life you've lived. It is because of my mercy and my grace. Anybody that enters heaven is by the mercy and the grace of God. So God makes that point as we move on into chapter 21 and and start looking at heaven. So we're back to Satan there. Now he's he's amassed this army and they're going up against Jerusalem and fire falls and the battle's over. (laughs) You know, once again, just like at Armageddon, we're building up to this great, 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 great battle. And like in seconds, it's over. And Satan, like the Antichrist, like the false prophet, just dismissed no great battle no great struggle God didn't sweat God didn't take a blow to the chin none of that God just put him in the lake of fire and that was the end of discussion and he joins the antichrist and the false prophet now remember the antichrist and the false prophet are people I know we've got these titles of them and these descriptions. I mean, these great monsters and, and they're awful. But they are actually just people. So little observation here. Here's two people that have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years. We learn something about death right here in that one verse. Death is not cessation of existence. Death is not just being annihilated, being no more. Once we are born the soul is eternal. We live forever. There's a question mark about where, but there's not a question mark about living forever. Day and night, forever and ever, they are tormented. And so once Satan is dealt with, then we have the resurrection of all unbelievers of all time. You see a reference here to the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Don't think of that as there's two resurrections, the first one and the second one. Think, put the word kind in there. There's the first kind of resurrection and there's the second kind of resurrection. The first kind of resurrection is the resurrection of all believers. Okay? Now that happens actually in multiple resurrections. The the first one being what you and I are going to be a part of, whether we've died and are in the ground or whether we're alive, there's going to be a rapture. And at the rapture, all the dead in Christ rise again. Now that right there brings up a question. So wait a minute, where do we go when we die? I thought we went straight to heaven. Remember, I've done a couple supplemental sermons during this series where I'm not taking passages out of Revelation, but I'm answering some questions Revelation brings up. So I've got a message coming up. Where do people go when they die? We're going to fit that in here as we get into 21 and 22 in heaven. Where do people go right now until all of these things happen? Because heaven and hell are future events. As a matter of fact, haven't you always have in your mind that Satan is in hell? Right? Don't you got him down there on a little satanic throne and fire and, you know, he's doing things to run the world. Folks, Satan's not in hell. You just saw where he was put into the lake of fire. He's not in the lake of fire until Revelation chapter 20. Satan is not in hell. The Bible never says anywhere that Satan is in hell. That's not where he is right now. He'll be put there. there. So we'll, we'll, we'll address where people go. Uh, when they die. But we have, we have believers being resurrected at the rapture. And then remember those two guys we studied when we were about halfway through Revelation? They were doing all these incredible miracles and works, and then the Antichrist killed them, and they lay dead in the street for three and a half days, and then they were. They were resurrected. Now, that's only two, but that that is a resurrection of believers right there. And then we just read about here in Revelation 20, the resurrection of tribulational believers, people who came to Christ during the tribulation. They weren't raptured back there with you and me. They came to Christ after that. And many of them, I can't help but believe from what we read, that the great majority of them will be killed by the Antichrist. And this is where... They are resurrected. So you've got a, a variety of resurrections of believers. The second kind of resurrection is unbelievers. And there appears to be only one. All unbelievers of all time are resurrected right here to the great white throne. You and I, believers, do not stand before the great white throne. We've already had our resurrection. We've already had our judgment. We've already gotten our rewards. So that's already happened for us by time we get to the great white throne. And these folks will come before the Lord, and they never claim the name of the Lord. Because they knew... They knew I know better. (laughs) I I can decide better who God is. I can decide better what rules I'm going to live by or not live by. I I mean, I know they they are going to come before that throne holding on to themselves, not on on to Christ. And so the first thing we see is there's a book of life and the book of life is the name of all those who are children of God, the name of all those who are saved. You know, knowing that book exists and knowing that it has names in it, you can't help but ask is my name in that book. Is your name in the book of life? Say, why? Well, think so. I hope so. I mean, I mean, we can't really, like, really, really know for sure, can we? My Bible says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, I've written these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I absolutely believe it is God's will, God's desire, God's work that you and I live with great security and great peace that our name's written in the book of life. As a matter of fact, it's that security and peace that gives us the ability to do very difficult things like forgive others. You know, if this life is all it's about, then I got to make things right between you and me. I got to get even. I got to get revenge. But, man, I, I. my name's in the book of life. It's based on that that I can forgive. It's based on that that I can be a witness. It's based on that that I can let an antichrist behead me. because My name's in the book of life. God absolutely wants us to know that. And the security is not in how I'm living. The security is in how Jesus lived for me and died for me and rose again for me. Amen. So we absolutely can know that our name is written in the book of life. None of these who stand before the great white throne is their name written in the book of life. So if I don't have Jesus, then the only thing I've got is myself. And so I will go before that throne and I will begin to make a case for myself. It doesn't matter whether I was a religious person or an irreligious person. I called out to this God or that God or to no God. Every single person is going to do the exact same thing at the great white throne. And that is make a case for how good they are. Because that's all we can do standing before God. And so we're, we're gonna make a case that, well, you know, I, I tried to do this good here and I intended to do and I, and I meant to do. It's funny how we all, again, religious or irreligious, we all live under this very faulty idea that my good is gonna outweigh my bad and that that should somehow add up to something for me. Even though that law, that principle, we've never seen working anywhere. And that's not just a a heaven or a hell thing. That doesn't even work today. You can be employee of the month, employee of history. And you do the right, wrong thing, and you're gone. You you, you can break no laws and drive down Jeff Davis here at 70 miles an hour, and I promise you, you're going to get a ticket. And you can't say, but I've got a perfect driving record. And yet we live under this view that I'm going to one day stand before God, and as long as it's 51 to 49 my good versus my bad. That, 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 that should cover me. You know what's interesting? We way oversell our good. And we way underestimate our evil. As a matter of fact, I would dare say, starting with this person right here, I would never describe myself as evil. I know I've done wrong. I know I've been bad. There's things I'm ashamed of. There's things I would not want you to know. But it's not. It's not evil. Evil just sounds so... Ugh. You know what? When you're standing before truth and purity and light and holiness and righteousness, you will understand how desperately evil you are. Now, you'll try to make a case that you're not, and that's what these books are. They're every thought, every deed, everything you should have done and didn't do, everything you shouldn't have done and did. The books will be thrown open, and it will, because God is fair, God is just. This isn't a you didn't play ball my way, so you're out. Listen, you'll never stand before anybody more fair. You'll never stand before anybody that is more into justice than God is. God isn't just as he meets a definition. He is the definition of justice. He will be fair and he will be good. And the books will not speak to your righteousness. They will speak to your evil. Sometimes we're a little bit aware of that. And sometimes we just move on in our incredible arrogance, thinking I'm a pretty good person based on what other people worse than you. When you stand before the great white throne, you're not being compared to other people worse than you. And from there, they move into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist, the false prophet and Satan, where there will be torment day and night forever and ever. It's not pleasant to talk about. It's not pleasant to think about. But it's real. I said last week, I want to repeat here. I've heard more times than I can count. Maybe you've heard somebody, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know a God who's like that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know a God. I don't want to worship a God. I don't want to be in a relationship with God who would do that. First of all, you need to get over yourself because there's not another God to choose. This is your creator and he's not done any wrong not to you not to the world and i don't think you're going to get to stand before him and proclaim what he's doing as right and just when you're covered in nothing but wickedness and evil that's not our call to make well i don't i don't want to know a god who does this and by the way it's not god who does this it's you who do this? This is not God's choice for people. This is the choice they made for themselves, because they knew they could create their own good. They could create their own world outside of the Creator. I said it last week, Ezekiel thirty three, eleven. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their wicked ways and find life. Today, 2 Peter 3.9, Peter is answering the question. You know, we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to fulfill this promise. It doesn't take 2,000 years to wonder where somebody is when they said they were coming back. In the 60s A.D., 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church was asking, where is he? Guys, it seems awfully slow, him keeping this promise. And Peter says, he's not slow as you count slowness. He is patient. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, not wanting any to come to this moment. He wants all to repent and to come to life. This is not something God did to people. This is the choice that they make for themselves. If we choose to be God ourselves, we will find ourselves in the second resurrection, in the second death that has an eternity in the lake of fire. It's not pleasant to think about. It's not pleasant to talk about, but it is real. You know, there's a variety of reasons that we could say people need the Lord. Here's one people need the Lord because there is an eternity. Let's pray. Father, as as we have walked through Revelation and just so much detail, so much to understand. And and Lord, it, it can be confusing. I mean, we believers will land in different places on the way they look at it, or what they believe about this, or or what they believe about that. But but one thing is clear whatever I grasp or don't grasp is that you have a purpose, you have a plan. It is incredibly detailed. It covers everything. And you have revealed that plan so that our lives could be shaped. So that we could respond rightly to what's going on all around us and what is going on inside us. God, you are good. And there's nothing good that you hide we just pause to worship you, to praise you, to thank you for the revelation. We say thank you for the, the salvation that you've provided, that I can literally today be absolutely secure and know the joy and peace of security because of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray right now you would, you would work in every heart in this room, everyone watching online. Lord, if our name's written in that book of life, I pray right now we can enjoy peace and security. As we think about a a, a book with our name in it, it, security is the, the, the feeling that comes from that. And we very just naturally say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that I can know that, that I can have that. And Lord, if there are those in this room right now watching online that are not in that book of life, I pray, God, that you would speak to their heart right now. I pray they're uncomfortable. I pray they can rightly recognize there is, there is no sense of joy. There is no security. I, 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 I don't know for sure. And, Lord, that in that insecurity, in that discomfort, they would reach out and grab hold of the good news. You can be saved. Eternal life in heaven can be yours. God, would you speak to every one of us right now? And I pray we each one right now would respond just as we should.